weekend band, a dance floor, and outside a sprawling gravel parking lot where dusty pickups greatly outnumbered sedans. Its regulars were what you would expect. Factory workers looking for a drink before heading home, country boys looking for fun, late-night twenty-somethings and the dance and party crowd there to listen to live music. It was a popular and busy place, employing many part-time bartenders and bouncers and cocktail waitresses. One was Debbie Carter, a 21-year-old local girl who'd graduated from Ada High School a few years earlier and was enjoying the single life. She held two other part-time jobs and also worked occasionally as a babysitter. Debbie had her own car and lived by herself in a three-room apartment above a garage on 8th Street near East Central University. She was a pretty girl, dark-haired, slender, athletic, popular with the boys, and very independent. Her mother, Peggy Stilwell, worried that she was spending too much time at the coach light and other clubs. She had not raised her daughter to live such a life. In fact, Debbie had been raised in the church. After high school, though, she began partying and keeping later hours. On the night of December 7, 1982, Debbie was working at the coach light, serving drinks and watching the clock. It was a slow night, and she asked her boss if she could go off duty and hang out with some friends. He did not object, and she was soon sitting at a table having a drink with Gina Vieta, a close friend from high school, and some others. Another friend from high school, Glenn Gore, stopped by and asked Debbie to dance. She did, but halfway through the song, she suddenly stopped and angrily walked away from Gore. Later, in the ladies' restroom, she said she would feel safer if one of her girlfriends would spend the night at her place, but she did not say what worried her. The coach light began closing early, around 12.30 a.m., and Gina Vieta invited several of their group to have another drink at her apartment. Most said yes. Debbie, though, was tired and hungry and just wanted to go home. They drifted out of the club in no particular hurry. Several people saw Debbie in the parking lot chatting with Glenn Gore as the coach light was shutting down. Tommy Glover knew Debbie well because he worked with her at a local glass company. He also knew Gore. As he was getting in his pickup truck to leave, he saw Debbie open the driver's door of her car. Gore appeared from nowhere. They talked for a few seconds, then she pushed him away. Mike and Terry Carpenter both worked at the coach light. He is a bouncer, she is a waitress. As they were walking to their car, they passed Debbie's. She was in the driver's seat talking to Glenn Gore, who was standing beside her door. The Carpenters waved goodbye and kept walking. A month earlier, Debbie had told Mike that she was afraid of Gore because of his temper. Gore, who didn't own a car, had bummed a ride to the coach light with an acquaintance named Ron West, arriving there around 11.30. West ordered beers and settled in to relax while Gore made the rounds. He seemed to know everyone. When last call was announced, West grabbed Gore and asked him if he still needed a ride. Yes, Gore said, so West went to the parking lot and waited for him. A few minutes passed, then Gore appeared in a rush and got in. They decided they were hungry, so West drove to a downtown cafe called The Waffler, where they ordered a quick breakfast. When they left the cafe, West asked his passenger where he wanted to go. To his mother's house, Gore said, on Oak Street, just a few blocks to the north. West knew the town well and headed that way, but before they made it to Oak Street, Gore suddenly changed his mind. After riding around with West for several hours, Gore wanted to walk. The temperature was frigid and falling with a raw wind. A cold front was moving in. 
They stopped near the Oak Avenue Baptist Church, not far from where Gore said his mother lived. He jumped out, said thanks for everything, and began walking west. The Oak Avenue Baptist Church was about a mile from Debbie Carter's apartment. Gore's mother actually lived on the other side of town, nowhere near the church. Around 2.30 a.m., Gina Vieta was in her apartment with some friends when she received two unusual phone calls, both from Debbie Carter. In the first call, Debbie asked Gina to drive over and pick her up because someone, a visitor, was in her apartment and he was making her feel uncomfortable. Gina asked who it was, who was there. The conversation was cut short by muffled voices and the sounds of a struggle over the use of the phone. Gina was rightfully worried and thought the request strange. Debbie had her own car, a 1975 Oldsmobile, and could certainly drive herself anywhere. As Gina was hurriedly leaving her apartment, the phone rang again. It was Debbie, saying that she had changed her mind, things were fine on her end, don't bother. Gina again asked who the visitor was, but Debbie changed the subject and would not give his name. She asked Gina to call her in the morning, to wake her so she wouldn't be late for work. It was an odd request, one Debbie had never made before. Gina started to drive over anyway, but had second thoughts. She had guests in her apartment. It was very late. Debbie Carter could take care of herself, and besides, if she had a guy in her room, Gina didn't want to intrude. Gina went to bed and forgot to call Debbie a few hours later. Around 11 a.m. on December 8th, Donna Johnson stopped by to say hello to Debbie. The two had been close in high school before Donna moved to Shawnee, an hour away. She was in town for the day to see her parents and catch up with some friends. As she bounced up the narrow outdoor staircase to Debbie's garage apartment, she slowed when she realized she was stepping on broken glass. The small window in the door was broken. Donna knocked on the door. There was no answer. Then she heard music from a radio inside. When she turned the knob, she realized the door was not locked. One step inside, and she knew something was wrong. The small den was a wreck. Sofa cushions thrown on the floor, clothing scattered about. Across the wall to the right, someone had scrawled with some type of reddish liquid the words, Jim Smith next will die. Donna yelled Debbie's name. No response. She had been in the apartment once before, so she moved quickly to the bedroom, still calling for her friend. The bed had been moved, yanked out of place. All the covers pulled off. She saw a foot. Then on the floor on the other side of the bed, she saw Debbie, face down, nude, bloody, with something written on her back. Donna froze in horror, unable to step forward, instead staring at her friend and waiting for her to breathe. Maybe it was just a dream, she thought. She backed away and stepped into the kitchen, where, on a small white table, she saw more words scribbled and left behind by the killer. He could still be there, she suddenly thought, then ran from the apartment to her car. She sped down the street to a convenience store where she parked and found a phone. When Detective Dennis Smith arrived at the apartment, the scene outside was busy with street cops, paramedics, onlookers, and even two of the local prosecutors. When he realized it was a potential homicide, he secured the area and sealed it off from the neighbors. A captain and 17-year veteran of the Ada Police Department, Smith knew what to do. He cleared the apartment of everyone but himself and another detective. Then he sent the other cops throughout the neighborhood, knocking on doors, looking for witnesses. Smith was fuming and fighting his emotions. He knew Debbie well. 
His daughter and Debbie's youngest sister were friends. He knew Debbie's divorced parents, Peggy Stillwell and Charlie Carter, and couldn't believe that their child was lying dead on the floor of her own bedroom. When the crime scene was under control, he began an examination of the apartment. The glass on the landing came from a broken pane in the front door, and it was shattered both to the inside and to the outside. In the den there was a sofa to the left, and its cushions had been thrown around the room. In front of it he found a new flannel nightgown, a Walmart tag still attached to it. On the wall across the room he examined the message, which he immediately knew had been written in nail polish. Jim Smith next will die. He knew Jim Smith. In the kitchen, on a small white square table, he saw another message, apparently written in ketchup. Don't look for, F-O-R-E, us, or else, E-A-L-S-E. On the floor by the table, he saw some jeans and a pair of boots. He would soon learn that Debbie had been wearing them the night before at the coach light. He walked to the bedroom, where the bed was partially blocking the door. The windows were open, the curtains pulled back, and the room was very cold. A mighty struggle had preceded death. The floor was covered with clothing, sheets, blankets, stuffed animals. Nothing appeared to be in place. When Detective Smith knelt by Debbie's body, he noticed the third message left by the killer. On her back, in what appeared to be dried ketchup, were the words Duke Graham, G-R-A-M. He knew Duke Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. Under her body was an electrical cord and a Western-style belt with a large silver buckle. The name Debbie was engraved in the center of it. As Officer Mike Keyswater, also of the Ada Police Department, was photographing the scene, Smith began gathering evidence. He found hair on the body, the floor, the bed, on the stuffed animals.